Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. One of the things I love about doing this show is the continuing education it provides to me. I always learn something from every guest we've ever talked with here. Often our conversations are with veterans who have been at it for decades. People like John Carpenter, Roger Corman, John Landis. But every bit as interesting to me are the new voices. Filmmakers who come out with a first film that is fresh and confident and already shows a distinctive cinematic voice, such as Ari Aster with Hereditary and Coralie Fargia with Revenge. But one side of the movie-making coin we've not really delved into before today is the reality documentary side. There are some really great docs about the making of films, and often the most fascinating are those devoted to the movies that crashed and burned, like Peter Medak's sublime The Ghost of Peter Sellers and Lost in La Mancha, a chronicle of the disastrous fate of Terry Gilliam's Man of La Mancha. On a much smaller scale, but every bit as fascinating, is Shirkers, all about the making of a Singaporean movie that never was completed. The film was written and directed by its star, a teenager named Sandy Tan. Twenty-five years later, Sandy went back to reconstruct its fate, resulting in this very special documentary about everything that went right and wrong in the process. It was snapped up by Netflix, who gave it quite a push for awards consideration, as well as heavy festival play. It's a great look into the process of making a movie, especially a first movie, as well as a peek into the social and cultural realities of Singapore at the time. We'll dig into this fascinating journey with Sandy Tan after this. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. So, you did not, my mistake, you did Mm. not direct the original Shirkers. No, I did not. There was a strange person involved, and that was um, a man named George Cardona. George Cardona. Right. As he, you know, he spelled it the French way because he was a Francophile. Um, but he was an American. Ostensibly American. <laughs> um, you know, but when you hear his voice, you know that he's from somewhere else. And that's right. part of his kind of, um, you know, indefinable mystery surrounding him. And he's like the ghost of my film because he was the ghost that was haunting my life when I was um, when I was an 18-year-old and 19-year-old when I was making Shirkers. Um, he was my best friend and mentor, and he was a man in his, well, 40s. He said he was in his late 30s, but, mm-hmm. you know, everything in his life, it turned out, was not as he said it was. And he was your film teacher. He was my film teacher. He was, um, he was teaching the, fil- the first film class in Singapore ever, um, the first filmmaking class in 16-millimeter um you know, me and my friends signed up for this class after high school and we met this guy and he was, you know, our mentor, my, and who became my kind of best friend because he was the, the first person who 
kind of took me seriously um, and, you know, took my crazy ideas seriously. I mean, this was a, a film that we shot based on my first draft. I mean, written as a, you know, psychotic 19-year-old. Um, all white pages. You had not done any rewriting on um, this yet. Not really. I mean, it was handwritten in pencil on notebook paper. And then one of my friends, Sophie, who was the producer on the film, was also 19. Her mom was the only person we knew with a typewriter. And then she typed out the first draft. I mean, this is how bare bones, homemade DIY this whole thing was. Well, let's go back to the beginning. Let's. Uh, where did your interest in filmmaking begin? You're, you were from Singapore. You were living in Singapore. Um, what was the movie that you saw that made you go, I'd love to do this? Um, you know, you would be surprised to hear that Singapore is a crazy, um, movie crazy place. I'm like, not I, surprised. I, I've been yeah, there. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and like, they still have the highest rate per capita of movie going in the world, apparently. Um, but back in the day, I mean, like even my, my, both sides of my family, I'm not close to either side. I mean, you know my mother's side um but like both sides they're all like movie crazy people my my mom's family like my mother and her siblings were all named after movie stars so she's really? my mother is named after alice faye the silent movie star not really? yeah and then her sister is named ginger after ginger rogers i mean it's, it's you know and so on it's and on. real classic hollywood it, movie yeah names. alec yeah. after alec guinness you know that kind of thing and then my my father's side like they would they went to the movies um you know like i don't know three three or five movies a week, that kind of, that kind wow. of crazy. Um, but they were like Hollywood, you know, you know, big movie, conventional movies of the day, right. crazy. I um, really started thinking about movies and wanting to tell movie, well, stories was like when I was, I guess, a little kid. And um, the first movie that I saw that excited me and that made me want to think about making movies, it was Marathon Man. Oh, wow. <laughs> that and, and that and The Tenant. Um, no, which is probably no, not a film go. that a child who's nine years old should have been allowed to see. <laughs> yes, um, good parent. But yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah. So what was it about Marathon Man? Was it the dental uh, appointment or? Yeah. I mean, is it safe? Is that yeah. what the line was? I, yeah. I don't remember. I haven't seen it in a long time. That's the time. line. Is it yeah. safe? Yeah. What's safe? Yeah, it's safe. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, so I... You know, I that was exciting to me. I'd never seen anything like it, you know, and Dustin Hoffman, who I'd seen in other things that were comedic. Um, but but The Tenant was the thing that really just freaked me out. I'd yeah, never seen an anything like it. an amazing film. This is Roman Polanski at his most Polanski. Yeah. It seems yeah, to be. Yeah. And so those were the ones that made you feel like it's time to get a camera and see what I can do? I No, because I was nine years old. Those, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but those were like, oh, I was excited by this. You know, I, I then, you know, got into reading a lot of um, V.C. Andrews. Ah, <laughs> and the, Flowers you know, the, in the, the Attic. Yeah, yeah and, and, and Stephen King and all that kind of stuff. I mean, all, what what nine-year-olds do in Singapore is they read a lot of Stephen King. Ah. Um, you know, girls. <laughs> that's great. I mean, and, and that's what we did. And um, so my imagination and was always tinged with horror and superstition because Singapore was a place that was tinged with horror and superstition. Well, let's it talk seemed, a little yeah. about that. I mean, because here in the U.S., we are not a particularly spiritual group when it comes to actual spirits. We don't... Mm -hmm see them as parts of our everyday lives but in Singapore and in other areas around there Indonesia and other uh, Asian nations um, it is a normal part of life right um not really I mean on the surface it seems like it's the most rational 
um, place in the world that they're just concerned with good grades and good jobs and mm-hmm. making some money and you know everybody should be a doctor or a lawyer or something right. but um but in terms of superstition i mean there's just like a huge appetite for ghost stories when i was growing up like when i was eight or nine that impressionable age my my um stepmom at the time who was my stepmom for about six months she was she's a person who was in shirkers like she was cleopatra wong you know who's the film that i <laughs> referenced in shirkers um kind of a cult 70s action star of asia mm-hmm. and um she was you know an actress um for a while in that in those films um so she was my stepmom after her acting career had crashed and burned and and my father married her for six seconds and then tried to kill her and then she left um but <laughs> don't but, toss these off too quickly here <laughs> but, we have an know, hour we have to discuss. but anyway yeah. and and she she um she was the best teller of ghost stories i ever met i mean actually she was the best storyteller i ever met and I knew that because I was obsessed with playing with dollhouses because that was the my first form of telling stories was creating all these crazy storylines for characters in the dollhouses that my baby cousins that I was playing with or pretending that it was their go well their dollhouses that I was playing with um, they could never keep up with my storylines because they were so convoluted and um, but you know so. This this woman, my stepmom, came in and just took over the storylines that I thought were complicated enough and really complicated <laughs> enough and told the best ghost stories I've ever heard. And that was because, apparently, she saw them everywhere. Uh-huh. And, you know. And what about you? During your childhood, did you have experience with ghosts? Or was this an ultra-rational family that um, you My family was ultra-rational, but we lived in a house that was... Um, you know that my father one of the way the ways he was kind of um, alienated from the rest of his siblings and his family was that he um, he saw things around the house <laughs> mm-hmm. and nobody would believe him that no one else saw yeah and um, and then you know like he was just thought of as being not very rational mm-hmm. and in my school which was like maybe 100 years old um, it's a girl's school you know creepy old school and <laughs> okay. and there were and there were you know all these rumors of things that happened in world war Two, you know which was bad in singapore because the japanese came and that did horrible things um and that that you know there were always constant rumors of you know ghosts in the bathrooms that were really dark and haunted and and you know you always felt weird and then and all that stuff but i never actually personally felt anything or saw anything thank mm-hmm. god because i'm mm-hmm. such a scaredy cat um <laughs> but but i had had i've had like close encounters i guess because my example, my high school yeah. was built um a very kind of a newish high school in the 90s uh in the late 80s and 90s was was built on what was reclaimed land in singapore mm-hmm. that used had been a beach um in world war Two. And apparently the Japanese had taken out a lot of people on that beach and shot them. And so it was a very haunted beach and they built over it, reclaimed land. And they built my high school on the, the tracks, the, the you know, over it and everything. And um, apparently, you know, my friends who were sensitive had saw things. Right. And were locked in rooms with things. <laughs> if you're practicing and doing drama after hours, things happened, were known to have happened. But from the very beginning, you were interested in stories. You were interested in the outre and the mm-hmm. the darker stories, yeah. the tenant and the like, supernatural as well, because of these things yeah. that you'd heard from your father. Yeah, and and from from you know my stepmom and and from the people around me and uh, the fact that there were always 
whispers of ghosts around the school. So they were constantly, you know, edge of your vision. There's something there. And it's yeah. this, this, I guess it's something you do to make your life more interesting if you live in such a sterile, sterile place like Singapore. But um, it was constant. Like the best-selling books in Singapore when I was a teenager constantly um, kind of made in Singapore books were you know, the best Singapore ghost stories, you know, compilations of short stories that weren't very good, but somehow <laughs> sold anyway because there was a huge appetite for them. Mm. And like kids could read them and they weren't, they didn't have, you know, too much sex and violence in them. They were kind right. of lame stories, but um, there was such an endless appetite for them that I'm actually amazed that no great horror film had come out of there. Well, when I visited Singapore, the only movie poster I saw, and I saw it all over the place, was The Bride with White Hair. So it became pretty evident to me that there was an appetite for the ghost story there. Yeah. It seemed like that was the movie in Singapore. Yeah, and that wasn't even made. That that was made in Hong Kong, right? Yeah, it's a I Chinese mean, movie. Yeah. So, but a lot of the Chinese culture is a part of the Singaporean yeah. culture as well as as English speaking. Yeah. Uh, most people, everybody yeah. speaks English in yeah. Singapore. Yeah. And then in the fifties, they made a, um, the studios when they had movie studios in Singapore in the fifties. They had this very successful um, chain of like um, um, movies about this female vampire that's indigenous to the area called the Pontiana. Uh -huh. um, and so they had a series of uh, films like the Pontianak films, um, like Sumpa Pontianak and a whole bunch of other things that, you know, were kind of cheesy with, you know, like, um, you know, bad makeup and, you know. Um, <laughs> were know, they what, influential what, to you? Did you they, see them as I, a I didn't kid? actually see them because they're really hard to see now, which is ah, sad because yeah. I think they're classics and should be seen by everybody. But somehow, you know, history is not that highly regarded there somehow. Right. And these movies just <laughs> fell into, I don't know. It's all like, about what's modern. Yeah. yeah, and and people forget them, and they, you know, they're in Malay, and they were folkloric, and there was maybe some kind of shame about that. Mm. I don't know. I have no idea. But I, you know, me and my friends of my generation and younger that were fascinated by that. We want to reclaim that, and so I do actually write a lot about the Pontianak in my novel, The Black Isle, because I find them endlessly um, fascinating. These female vampires, you know, who kind of have some agency and you know, kind of appear out of the woods and are just furious and hungry. So Black Isle came out in 2012, I think, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Is there a plan for American publication? Well, this is an American Oh, it's an American yeah. publication. It is. Okay, um, it's published by Hachette. And during oh, that year when, wow, great. when when they had that big fight with Amazon oh, that summer. Oh, great. Lucky <laughs> timing for you, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So it's it's it it you know did well in certain places in the world. It did very well, and I think I you know from Turkey in Turkey. Um, Interesting. Did, did well in Singapore. Um, you know, there's a Turkish edition, there's a Polish edition, there's a Dutch edition. You know. Well, more than filmmaking, you had been known for your film reviewing, cri film criticism for the Straits uh, Times. And, yeah, when I was a kid. Um. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but you've done a lot of writing and yeah. uh, a lot of journalism and critical journalism as well. But let's go back to 18 years old and the idea for Shirkers. It's not a genre movie in the horror genre, what we normally discuss here, but it is a very vibrant, confident young woman starring in her own screenplay. Um, tell me where the roots of that um, came from. I wanted to make um, 
you know, I wanted to make a mob movie. <laughs> I okay. wanted to make a person, I mean, a movie where I could act out my fantasies of just killing people. <laughs> um, <laughs> Wait, but, before we go beyond that, let's... I should say what it's about. Uh, well, let's see where no. those the motivations for wanting to kill people came from, <laughs> and then we'll go what it's about. <laughs> okay. Um... Your family life did not seem to be pretty particularly conventional. No, no, I, I, I was, I did not have parents. Um, I mean, they existed. They, they made me, and then they vanished. Um, but I, I, I was kind of raised, kind of raised by my grandparents, uh, who weren't really there. Um, mm-hmm. which is the best way to be raised. Right, um, raised by yourself. Yeah, yeah, and by wolves, and by movies, and books, and, <laughs> and you know, hearsay. Um, but I, um, so I, I, um. You know, I, I watched a lot of movies, and I really liked, you know, the Terminator movies. I really mm-hmm. liked Goodfellas. I liked movies where people got to um, get rid of people who didn't they didn't want to be anymore. Do you um, think you were an angry kid? I guess I was, and I sublimated it, um, and I just transferred it into, you know, humor. Because mm-hmm. uh, I had a, you know, I had a fanzine called The Exploding Cat, which was um, collage and just... You know, the, the only way I could kind of deal with surviving in Singapore, I mean, the way I could make myself survive this um, was to kind of have a sense of humor and, and kind of make fun of the headlines and kind of t- tear them and literally tear into them and cut them up and just make new stories out of them and make them funny. Right. Um, that was the way I survived it. And so, you know, in my imaginings, I guess, you know, I would constantly imagine getting rid of certain people. And I thought, why not put that in the film? And, and, and then also the other thing I... I was also struck by was things were constantly erasing themselves. I didn't have to kill anyone. I didn't have to destroy anything. Buildings and people were dying. Um, and I had to capture them before they were all vanished before my very eyes. And so I, I, um, I, I just wanted to make a film where you could, or do something where you could capture these images, like these buildings and places that were going to vanish. And people like my grandmother who was getting on, who was, you know, yeah, um, you know, I guess she was, she was going to get old and die, I knew, someday. And my little baby cousins that I knew were going to grow up into boring, conventional grown-ups, destroyed by the the, the environment. And, and so I, you wanted to I wanted to them. save them. I wanted yeah. to be the catcher in the rye and just kind of, you know, put them all in one place. And my friends and all my, you know, I knew that this was like, a, you know, when you're on the cusp of adulthood, I guess, um, you know, things were going to change and you just want to capture that lightning in the bottle and just capture everything for that one moment. And I thought that summer of 1992, too, the opportunity was given to me to, I mean, we had the opportunity to make a feature film. Why not just capture all of this in the form of a road movie uh, called Shirkers in which I would play the 16-year-old heroine who's actually you know, going around auditioning people to kill <laughs> and take them into <laughs> into this other dimension with her. Um, but it was really an excuse as a road movie to show these places that were disappearing as well as people who were, you know, funny characters that were going to, you know, vanish off the face of the earth. So it was social commentary about what was going on in in Singapore at the time as well as pieces of time, as Peter Bogdanovich yeah. would call it. Yeah, except... Um, it was social commentary and I refused to show anything that was a skyscraper or anything boring and gray. It was going to be completely curated according to the world I wanted people to see. So they were, it was just like, we huge, we really production 
design the shit out of this thing as 18 year olds <laughs> and 19 year olds with no money and um you know borrow all these funny costumes and and found houses that you wouldn't normally see on a regular regular trip to singapore as a casual observer like most of my friends and family who watched the you know the footage would not recognize that place because it was a no heavily, raffles yeah no, no it was <laughs> yeah. none of that stuff it was everything that was not seen and everything that i loved and everything that i knew would vanish and that was that actually made the place special so it was like um i mean my inspirations at that that point were like tim burton um you know beetlejuice um you know edward scissorhands that kind of thing like a very curated version and the coen brothers um you know it was like a different version like you you don't see america as you know it stylized yeah stylized and and so it was it was my version of doing my version of singapore that wasn't a real singapore so this was the first Singaporean road movie, right? Yeah, it was. I mean, some some people say it's the first indie film too, but that's very disputable. So I'll never right. want to do that and open that can of worms. But <laughs> but nobody was making films like that in Singapore. We shot in sixteen. We shot like it was just like a bunch of kids running around shooting guerrilla style on location, and nobody had done that kind of thing before, like hijacking buses as we did, right. stealing old people out of old folks' home, and you know <laughs> grabbing them for a day for a shot, and then taking them home and you know taking them back returning them and them not realizing what had happened and stealing kids out of school pretending they were sick you know just for a day's shoot and then putting them back in school i mean it was like it was like a bunch of kids running around bugsy malone style doing this you know <laughs> cockamamie crazy movie but how did that opportunity come about I, i'm i'm curious to this mysterious film school teacher who became your director uh, and the script that you wrote, how it came to be the opportunity to actually get the time and limited financial mm -hmm. resources to make that. Um, it's magic when you have kids who are have the summer off and or who are actually having some of them are holding day jobs, um, you know, and and are able to do this with the the figurehead of this one man who was supposedly the grown up on the set, and therefore Kodak would give you free film. Mm -hmm. um, the film equipment equipment company would tr would trust you with camera equipment and thousands mm -hmm. of dollars of things because that was a I mean it was minimal stuff. We there had, was like, a reputable yeah, adult. It was yeah. it was an adult. You know whether he was reputable is disputable, seemingly but reputable. but seemingly he was one. <laughs> okay. He was a grown up. Um, and you know he knew how to operate a camera, so I think we used his camera maybe, or we rented a camera. I'm not sure. I can't remember. But there were like the grip equipment. They were like let us have this stuff because there was a grown up who would be responsible. And then there was a you know a camera operator who's 30, and therefore 30 was like so much more. He's like <laughs> that was a grown up That's compared mature. to the rest of yeah. us. Yeah. And then the rest of us were just kids. Um, but we, we had such energy, I guess. And I, I talked my friends into it and then we talked our high school class of, um, I went to a kind of a, a high school that had a special drama program. And so a, a lot of my friends who were in that program kind of pitched in doing costumes and, you know, all this production design, and all this kind of stuff for free. Cause everybody just like, how would, I mean, nobody would pass up this opportunity to just do this, you know, <sighs> You never get to make a film when you're 18 or 19. Right. I mean, like, but people around you were excited about the fact that a movie was being made and that yeah. they could be a part of it. So everybody volunteered. Yeah. And, and then the actors as well, like the grownups who kind of gave their time, like weeks of their time to be in the film. And I just um, I just feel like I just feel badly for them because they were you know they were good. Like some of the performances in there were so good. And this these people could have had careers 
you know, maybe small careers, maybe one more film, maybe not at all, but at least they would have lived out their dream of being an actor. But um, what happened, of course, um, is that George Cardona, the mysterious man, um, the uh, mentor in all of this, um, he, he kind of vanished off the face of this earth with all of the footage. Right. So that's the great mystery is what happened to it. Um, but I'm also curious as to how he was as a director. What did he do? Was Because it seems like you had more control of what was going on in this movie than your so-called director did. Yeah, I think he was, um, you know, he's, he's a very talented um, photographer. He had a very good eye. He was a very good. He was the best storyteller I ever met after my stepmom with the ghost stories. Right. Um, he he just was such a persuasive talker, mm-hmm. and I think he's only ever talked stories. I mean, he's never actually finished or made anything. Um, so when so IMDb is blank <laughs> one credit. Um, he was I think the DP for one film called The Last Slumber Party, which is um the nineteen seventy. Eight, I think um, right. slasher, slasher movie. film yeah, made yeah. by Steve Tyler who actually appears in, in my film Shirkers ah. his protege um, so and he stole reels from that too so that film can never be completed in some so you way. were the star of this movie that you wrote yeah. what was your relationship with him as a director and then beyond that because it seemed a little creepy yeah um, he was my best friend Mm-hmm. Um, before we start shooting. Um, and, you know, I always expected him to... Well, I wasn't there for pre-production because of the way um, school terms worked. I was, you know, finishing up my first year in college in England. And my friends Jasmine and Sophie, who were working more closely with George on the production as producer and assistant director, they kept sending me letters saying, George doesn't know what he's doing. Um, he really doesn't know what he's doing. Where's the money coming from? He keeps stalling. He keeps saying that we're going to have a production designer from Apocalypse Now is going to show up anytime now, <laughs> any day now. Like his friend from, you know, so-and-so is going to fly in from the U.S. And, and help us and save us. And it's just him and these kids. And he had no idea. There was no money. Um, and he was stalling and stalling and stalling. But somehow um, Sophie and Jasmine managed to convince, you know, these equipment companies to lend the stuff and our friends to pitch in. And, you know... So everybody pitched in for free, you know. Um, I expected him to know more about how, like, how a set was run beyond where to put the camera and how this the tape recorder thing right. worked. The Nagra, whatever it was. Right. It was a long time ago, so it was the Nagra. It was a Nagra, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I remember that term. Um, <laughs> but it's like, he, like, in terms of directing, in terms of blocking, you know, he wasn't the greatest. He gave you no direction in terms of acting. Did you um, understand what those concepts even were at the, at the age of 18? Yeah, because I actually made um, short videos. I had made mm-hmm. films on video. Mm-hmm. So short, you know, in his film class. And I had also gone through theater school. I mean, I was directing plays. Right. So I knew what so blocking knew was. So you knew certainly blocking and performance. Yeah, and performance. And I kind of knew more than, than he did about that stuff, it seems like. So what... What sort of direction would he give that would give you an indication that he was a little lacking in that? Knowledge? It was just like stand here, stand there. Um, it was mm. all. Um, it was all. You you're know, happy. You're sad. You know that um, kind of stuff. No, not none of that. Even Nothing. just say those lines, and I think um, maybe he did better with some of the other actors. I don't know. Like there was a nurse lady who gave great a great performance, and maybe he said something to her. Um, but he wasn't. He suddenly wasn't a director in, in that sense, and. 
but he was, uh, you know, a lot of directors are like that, you know, not necessarily, you don't have They're to technical. be. technical. Yeah, yeah or, 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 but I think he was just overwhelmed by, by being overrun by children, he thought. Yeah. And who, who ultimately was getting more attention maybe from the outside world, you know, because. Um, then he wanted. Then, then he wanted, mm-hmm. like the, you know, a newspaper reporter would come and write about it and the, the, the making off and, and we were more, you know, interested in talking to us, you know, because it seemed like we knew what we were doing. We we're running the set. And um, then he then he was. And and I think there was a certain level of him feeling overwhelmed. And that's why he, you know, this is me speculating. One of the reasons why he um, just wanted to sabotage the whole thing. So tell me about how that sabotage took place. I know that the film came close to being done. But suddenly the breaks happened. Yeah, we we shot the film over the summer of 1992, um, over a long time, I must say, um, because, you know, George being obsessed with um, Nestor Almendros, the great DP, Ah, um, you know, who shot Days of Heaven and films like that for Terrence Malick, as well as films for the French New Wave, because George was very much into the French New Wave. Mm -hmm. Um, We wanted it to look special. And in Singapore, which is located on the equator, the light is just horrifically ugly um, <laughs> most hours of the day and it's most hard. of its day. Yeah. It's very harsh. And so it only looks nice like if you're shooting exteriors. And a lot of our films was set outdoors. Um, you could only shoot during magic hour. And right. so we waited the entire day for magic hour. And in Singapore, on the equator, um, magic hour is not an hour. It's only 15 minutes. So we had 15 minutes to shoot. And it's like, we took two and a half months to shoot this damn thing because everything was about waiting for right. those 15 minutes. Um, and most of it is exterior. A lot of it's, yeah, exterior. And so, you know, that's why it took so long. Um, and, you know, it took the entire summer. Jasmine Sophie went back to the U.S. for college. You know, Jasmine went, was at NYU. Sophie was at um, USC studying film. And I w- was in England. And I went back to school. And we thought, like, George was going to put together the film, like edit this film and get it done while we're away. And, you know, over the next course, course of that year, we realized that he was not returning phone calls. He was kind of not responding to us. And then slowly we we discovered that he had no intention of kind of, you know, getting back in touch and, and finishing this thing. And he basically kind of disappeared. Yeah. So, Shirker's the documentary. Mm-hmm. When did the concept of that come together? Because suddenly there was the discovery of all of these elements from the film that you didn't know even existed anymore. Yeah. So um, what happened was I had to bury this, my past as a, a teenage troublemaker and rabble rouser and filmmaker <laughs> and, and, you know, and just become a new different person over the years. And I, I, um, you know, became many different things, including, as you said, a film critic, uh, and then went to film school, which, you know, so I did everything in reverse. Um, and then I went to Columbia, New York. Um, and then I, I came to the States. I mean, I was in the States, um, you know, grew up maybe and became a novelist <laughs> and, um, you know, decided to, to bury all that. I mean, the black Isle is in a way, my novel is kind of a, a strange history of of that too, like burying that part of me. Um, and I thought I would do something else. And then when I was actually just before the black Isle was going to be published in 2012, 
In 2011, I heard from a voice from the past that was related to Shirkers. And this person said, oh, um, you know, George is dead. I mean, it's not a spoiler, just say he's dead. Right. And, um, you know, I found um, 70 cans of 16 millimeter film labeled Shirkers. Are you interested in getting them back nah and, and, and you know like so it was like it was it was both a gift and a curse it was like this 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 mummy reanimated this this ghost that was coming back from the past and it's like do you want to deal with this i mean this is like opening up this huge wound you know this monster that you've kind of set to rest was coming back to life well, before we get there what was that feeling when everything shut down and and george disappeared and all of this work that you had put into it it had to be raw to what what was your feeling and and was it something you wanted to just sublimate right away or was it something you agonized over for a while i agonized over it and then you you know it's this is your heart and soul yeah it starts sounding like you were a a kid who was making up stories like i saw a ghost and nobody believes you you know because you had no evidence of it um really that this was yeah. an amazing time. Only the people who, who were there, who saw this ghost with you, who experienced this thing with you, believed you and knew what it was. And so you kind of bound. And I always think of us, me and my friends, as like the kids in It, you know, yeah. Stephen King's It, yeah. where, um, you know, we had this experience and then we all had to bury it because nobody else would understand. And we all had to grow up. And there was and then nothing one day, left that and there was nothing left that and, represented it. And yeah, and then um, over the years, like the signs came back to me, really strange signs, you know, that I talk about in the film, where you know I watched um, when I was watching Rushmore by Wes Anderson, mm-hmm. and some of the in- images in there, and actually the thematic stuff, and even just the colors, it just like was like it was my film calling out to me because mm-hmm. there was so many parallels. But again, there's no one to say this to. There's no one to. Exp- it to because you sound like a crazy person right only the people who worked on it with you and they'd gone to different places exactly we're no longer friends and it's all been broken you know and then so like the killer clown and it i mean many years Mm -hmm. later this thing surfaces and you have to deal with it and it all came from that call of someone saying i've got these cans of film yeah and do i want to deal with it and then had you I, completely forgotten about it and I had not it? never never forgotten it's always just been inside underneath underneath right. I just never talked about it I've had I've got friends who've known me 20 years um, since I moved to the US who have nev- not known a single thing about shirkers and when I made this film they were like what the fuck and it's <laughs> like you know that you had this whole other life um, they had no idea and it was so buried um and so tra- traumatic, really. It's like yeah. burying this trauma, tra- you know, traumatic, toxic thing. That even when I got the 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 rows of the reels back and and everything else, like the storyboards and everything that was returned to me, um, it took me a long time before I could even open up those boxes. Was there even a resistance? Uh, a moment where you thought, I don't know if I want this stuff back at all. I want the stuff back because I wanted, you know, because I'd been searching the world. Mm-hmm. And it was so you'd been actively pursuing this during those twenty yeah like years. for intermittently you know because your heart breaks and your soul breaks and you you just don't want to keep searching for something where you're never gonna find it you're never gonna find this guy and you know me and my friends it's such a toxic thing that 
that whenever we talk about it, it just we turn back into teenagers and it's all recriminations. Whose fault was it? You know, you talked us into this when we weren't ready. We were obviously not ready. It's your fault. Um, and I brought everybody along with it, wasted everybody's time, blah, blah, blah. Hmm. Um, so I was responsible for so much of this that was on me in many ways. And so it was really on me also to solve this mystery once and for all. You know, to kill this demon once and for all. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it was it was on me again. And but but I had grown up, I've become a different person. Like I was really struggling with some of the things that people in movies struggle with, you know, when the demon is reanimated in your life. Like, do you actually wanna answer this call to adventure? You know, but if you don't answer it then you're closing the door to potential adventure. So what do you do? And an experience you've had is valid regardless of how it turns out. Yeah. But you turned this into something that became something quite wonderful for you. Uh, yeah. Not just discovering what had happened to all this stuff and recovering it all, but you were able to turn it into a feature film on its own merits that probably had even more value mm-hmm. now than it would have had when you were 18. Definitely. This I mean, built a new you. Yeah, it did. Um, it is, it is, it is like, at first it seemed like a curse and then it seemed like a gift. I mean, it's a very strange thing where it's delayed, but I feel much stronger than I was. And in the course of making this film, it's really strange to say, but I was changed. You know, I was my own Frankenstein. You know, I was both Dr. Frankenstein and the Frankenstein. And, you know, my old teenage me was reanimated. Not just George and not just this whole trauma, but really the idealistic, fearless teenage me was reanimated and is now part of me. And I realized that making this film is like singing this very strange duet with my younger self. And we are now doubly strong. And yeah. Well, it sounds like the experience in a way destroyed you for a while mm-hmm. and that you were able to rebuild it and and be bigger and better and stronger than ever and now you have a different direction your career has taken because you've suddenly made this documentary feature about the process that is very worldly and it's very understanding and it's very uh, i don't know it's it's a rebuilding of your own self yeah in cinema yeah. And so tell me about the process of that decision of, you know, I've got all this stuff. This is a story worth telling in its, uh, in its own right. Yeah. I, I watched the footage. Um, I, you know, I took all of them, six, the 16 millimeter film to this place in Burbank and had them digitize it. And that was, you know, I had to hold my breath because I, you know, like if this footage doesn't turn out to be what I remember in my head, then all is lost, you know, on some level. So it but, had never been processed before? I mean, then? I guess it was processed. But it, it just had was not never been digitized. Been digitized. Yeah. So there was no way of seeing it. Mm-hmm. And there was, it's really hard to see um, 16 negatives, like right. what positive, well, processed negatives. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and like, so it was like really hard to find any place that kind of knew what to do with film anymore, you know, in, this was um, 2015 when it happened. Right, you don't want to project it no, and scratch and, and, it. And so it took me three years, by the way. Like when the when the film the, the the boxes were returned to me, I stacked them in the corner of my living room so they would take less space. Mm-hmm. And there were seven boxes, so I stacked them up one on top of each other, and they resembled a kind of a. I keep saying this, they resembled a sarcophagus, mm. a mummy's coffin, and it was just staring at me for three years before I had the I found the courage to open them and see what was inside. And then finally, 
I did. I had to take them to be digitized because I had to get rid of them out of my house. And um, I looked at this footage and, and it was exactly as I remember it. They uh-huh. were kind of startlingly colorful and ambitious and they captured this kind of a magical, strange world that was forever lost. And I knew that, you know, if I put put this thing together as a film, the original Shirkers, it would be less interesting than everything that had gone on, like behind the scenes, the story of how this thing came to be and how it came to be lost and how it came to be found again and all the friendships that were broken by it and all the other things that I had to solve as a detective trying to, to kind of piece together the, the kind of giant jigsaw puzzle of my life. And so when you finally saw that, that was the decision to rebuild that. But did you contact the other people who had been involved, Jasmine and, yeah, and your other friends? So yeah. tell me about what their reactions were and, and what those conversations were like. Um, it was, it's very difficult, you know, because it's such a toxic thing. And with each of them, I they felt like they'd been fucked over. Yeah. And, and also by me in some ways, and, because and your friendship was brutalized. Yeah. By mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it was, you had, to, I had to tread really carefully and, and with each of them, I had a different approach and, um, you know, and so when I, when I interview my friends in the film Shirkers, that you can see on Netflix, um, it's it's um, it's it's it that you can see um, that I have very different relationships with each of them, and I try to capture what it's like to talk to friends that you've been friends with for a long time, and and it's been kind of trauma, like been through some kind of trauma, and I you know like most films when you see people talking to their friends, it's like also staged and rehearsed, and you don't see the real the what it feels like to be talking to your friends in real life. Um, well, you can see in this film the reactions to each other and, and the hesitations and, yeah. and the kind of roadblocks that had been put into the friendships. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's pretty raw in this movie. Yeah, and so that was really important for me that I did not um, overly discuss this with them and just saved it for the conversation when the On camera, camera. Was, yeah. yeah. So the decision was made to put that back together to to reinvestigate this this traumatic event in your life um what was the next step what were you going to do with it other than was this therapy or did you actually go out to netflix or other potential sources and say i've got this movie um you know like putting together a documentary like this um where it sounds like such a cockamamie scheme. Like nobody would kind of believe you can put this together because it's so complicated and so much archival materials as well because, you know, I had videos from my own life in there and all that. Um, and so, you know, seeking funds was always going to be difficult. Trying to find a producer was going to be difficult. And um, like people do documentaries about social themes on the social theme, that kind of thing, this kind of crazy thing. You just got to have some way of doing it yourself. This is personal and yeah, therapeutic. It's personal. <laughs> yeah, and, and so I went to Sundance um, Documentary Film um, Institute, well, film grants, I guess, and mm-hmm. they gave me a, a small development fund and then and then from there on I went on to, I found Reach, which is a small non-profit that does really interesting innovative films like Beasts of the Southern Wild and, oh, yeah. you know, Sorry to Know, uh, Sorry um, sorry to bother you and, oh, great and the Florida stuff. Project. Yeah. I mean, like small, unusual, unclassifiable. Those are all fantastic movies. Kinds of so things. they have good taste. Yeah, they have good taste. I mean, so they gave me a bit of money too and they were great partners in this creatively um, with me um, just in terms of just people. It's a sounding board. Um, 
the good friends there. And um, so, like, it was basically two small places. And then the rest of it was just me in my garage and finding mm-hmm. collaborators the same way, pretty much like how I did the original Shirkers, which was you handpick these people and they're going to be very unlikely people because they're going to be people you you pick with your gut that aren't necessarily people who are, you know, been, I, I guess, um, anointed by the documentary film world who are, you know, have a huge amount of credits to their name. Right. So I picked a editor, um, you know, actually I shot um, this film with um, Iris Ng and she was actually a known quantity. Um, she had shot stories we tell for Sarah Polly and she was like probably the most expensive person I had to hire. But I needed somebody who, who you know, who, who at the very first get go, I, I needed somebody who could, you know, kind of shoot this kind of thing with me. You knew could do it. Who, yeah. yeah, who who actually could disappear. Um, and so we shot the interviews together. Um, but beyond that, like in terms of editors and producers, I mean, I produced this myself. I co-edited this myself because I was the only person who knew the story. I mean, there's no way I could hire an editor and have them go away and and kind of throw this together because I could first of all I could not afford anyone and secondly they wouldn't know what to do (laughs) um and then you know thirdly I knew I had to sit with somebody you know every single day and the somebody had to be um inexperienced and pliable and talented enough um (laughs) and that's a tall order so like I found this kid Lucas Seller who was a skateboarder and former barista um, who had not edited a single uh, feature documentary in his life. And, um, you know, and, and I just took a chance on him. And he, you know, he was a kind of a, he knew Photoshop. He was a Photoshop wizard. He was actually mm-hmm. working as a barista in Starbucks when he got his first film job by um, Jeff Fusick, a, a kind of a documentary film director who made this film, The Devil and Daniel Johnston, that a lot of people loved. Mm-hmm. And then and then he made um, author, the JT Leroy story, which I right. really loved. Right. And he found Lucas for that by um you know like buying coffee from him at starbucks or something and saying that he was looking for somebody who could build a website for him and lucas says i can do it and um (laughs) and of course he had no idea but on nights and weekends he taught himself and lucas told me all this he taught himself how to build a website and then he went to jeff and he said i can do it and then he built him a website and i just loved the chutzpah of that i just loved the fact that he was completely self-made and the fact that he didn't have much credits or you know whatever fancy stuff to his name you know you want somebody like that is we're gonna make this kind of film in a diy way somebody with some 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 kind of spunk and you know gung-ho and just can do it and so we we kind of basically piece together the whole of shirkers that way great so tell me what this movie means to you what it means to me um it's um I mean, I it, it feels to have been hugely healing and yeah. and mystery solving, but yeah. it feels even bigger than that. And I just yeah, love it's, to know um, you from know, the so inside out what it's, it is. It's like, it's, I was a detective making this film, solving this mystery, and I kind of solved it satisf- well, satisfactorily to myself, I think. And then, um, and to my friends who, who, I, who, who tell me that I've given them a chunk of their childhood back. Mm. Um, you know, and then for me it's it's it, you know it means to me different things to me at different stages i guess and i i feel like um you know i'm a new person because i'm i'm kind of you know not rehabilitated but reformed actually mm-hmm. um as a new person you know stronger um more confident and and as a storyteller as just a person you know just much more whole 
um so it's it's a it's a strangely spiritual experience yeah. you know where you realize you're not the sorcerer's apprentice you're the sorcerer mm-hmm. um and you're making films in the 21st century which is extremely liberating um compared to the tools that are available to you in the past right. um and you know and you have new friends now new collaborators um the world seems much more open and optimistic so that's changed and then then the world like sharing the film with the world that has changed even more um well that's a thing too a a painting a film a book uh, a piece of music means nothing without connecting to its audience yeah so you've been out on the festival circuit and sharing this for, for a year so tell me how that changed your perception and perspective of what this story from your life meant yeah. to be. Um, you know, like, it's it's a crazy little story from a crazy episode in my life from a very tiny part of the world that nobody even thinks about in the United States, really. And um, and then premiering this film at Sundance last year, 2018, um, at the Egyptian, which is, you know, kind of a magical space, um, was, was actually a strangely magical experience. Um, you know, it was just really a strong, warm, crazy, enthusiastic full house. And that was the first inkling I had that this film was connecting with people other than me and the people who made the film and my friends who knew the story that, um, because people came crying to me afterwards, like people who had no connection to the film who weren't not filmmakers, who were just people in Utah going to see this movie. Right. And, and then then Jasmine and Sophie, who were in Sundance too, had people like running and chasing them down the street, you know, mm-hmm. and on the on the trams and stuff, and just like wanting to tell them their life stories. And then you realize, oh, this is not just about us, it's about everybody else, because everybody is taking this story and making it theirs, and it's so much more, it's like taking a load off my shoulders, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then on the whole festival trail, it's been, it's been amazing, and they gave us a, uh, they gave me an award at Sundance for directing as well, which was nice. Mm-hmm. And then after that, Netflix picked it up, and then we went to other festivals and then college towns. College right. towns are where this movie really, really, really rocks. Uh-huh, you know, amazing. young people really get it. Um, it totally makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> so we we played at True False, which is a great documentary film festival, really strange, interesting one in Columbia, Missouri. And we had like 1,100, 1,200 people see it. And, wow. and it was just like, it was like a rock concert or something. They were just so, so revved and so loving it and so feeling that things were possible because we did this and we had this horrible thing happen to us and yet it's fine. It didn't break us. And I think um, that kind of story just resonates with younger people, but also like older people who feel like, you know, um, they had something left behind that they hadn't finished and now they feel like it's never too late. You can just go back and revisit this thing. You know, it's never, it's never too late. Um, so that kind of stuff has been great. And then, and then, and then further on, like we were just, we got released on Netflix, I guess, um, not late October and the, it's just expanded exponentially. Like I'm getting letters and fan art from around the world, Mm -hmm. you know, um, in different languages every single day. And it's just amazing that all these kids who live in nowhere places and especially in Latin America, I'm hearing a lot from, you know, people in Peru and Brazil and, you know, Colombia and, you know, and also Argentina and like people just write to me and just send me things in Spanish and, you know, Portuguese and, and just like tell me that they are now like really want to go out and there and make stuff and they're 19 they were just like me and you know all this kind of stuff so it's been it's been really cool 
Have you had different experiences in different countries, or has it been pretty universal in, um, in the reactions? In terms of traveling um, with the film um, physically, I've done the U.S. Um, and the London, I mean, Sheffield, U.K., and then, um, you know, not that many other countries. Like, I did right. um, Copenhagen, I guess, and then I did Singapore. But so I haven't actually physically traveled. Right. I mean, you the haven't gone to Latin America. Yeah. You haven't gone to Eastern yeah. Europe. And yeah, things. but it's but the film has via Netflix, which is kind of a, a nice thing because you know going to the movies is so expensive now. Mm-hmm. I have I have no delusions about people you know paying money, real money to go see a documentary that you know to take a, take a chance on something like that. But if it's on the on your screen at Netflix, um, you know you can just watch it on your. A lot of people watch it on their phones. I mean, right. in these strange countries. Um, and I don't care how people watch it as long as they watch it, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and, and, and feel that it means something to them. Um, and then, the, the, you know, we've also had a theatrical release in New York and L.A. and mm-hmm. San Francisco. And then we did we have a traveling 35 millimeter print that we nice. made. Actually, we made it because film. You, film, my God. you yeah. know, just to go back to my roots, you know, we made the 35 that played at the New Beverly a couple oh, yeah. weeks ago. Yeah. And we oops, and we sold out there, and that was amazing. And then we they only play yeah exactly. Millimeter. So we yeah, had to do that Quentin's in order to theory. play there. And then um, and now that print, all those two prints, because they made one for me too. And I said travel it too. So they're <laughs> traveling it. Um, just played in Chicago yesterday, and then it's going to Metrograph in New York, and it's, it's going to be traveling around a little bit more for the the people. And the people who who saw it in, on Netflix at home are just are going to the to the movies to see it on the big screen. Nice. So a lot of people are seeing it. Um, what's amazing about Netflix too is that so many of these kids who are watching the film and watching it like five, six times and telling me, um, you know, because maybe it's maybe it's a language thing, but maybe there's there's just so much to see on the screen and they're there's a lot going on. Fra- yeah, freeze framing. Um, Sophie, my friends, like was a 19 year old producer of this film she wrote these crazy letters to kodak (laughs) you know trying to convince them to give us free film and i i I show some of those letters for a second but so they freeze freeze it so they can can freeze it it. you can read (laughs) these crazy letters and so this is why people are watching it multiple um multiple times and and that's kind of an amazing thing again about the 21st century that you can do this you made a huge documentary that was incredibly meaningful to you is there another documentary in you, or do you want to tell fictional stories? Um, I am not um, closing the door in documentaries. You know, if I've come across, I mean, it's, again, it's going to be about story. And, you know, if I come across the best story, you know, I'm, I'm definitely going to pursue that, you know, but that's going to be when that happens, because um, I know I can do it now. But, um, but you know, but going ahead, I'm getting so many offers in fiction and I'm just looking at a lot of, you know, opportunities there and I'm talking to a lot of people about different projects right now. That's fantastic. Um, so that's exciting. Going back to my roots and, you know, it's really about the story, you know. One more cyclical question. You were a film critic. Now you're on the receiving end of mostly glowing reviews. How does that feel? Yeah, it's we're one hundred percent certified fresh. Yeah, <laughs> um, but I, I, you know, but uh, as a as a film critic, I would not take that very seriously. Yes. <laughs> um. So I I always find that really funny. It's nice. It's nice to have a, a but nice, it's a nice vindication. It's a nice whole tomato, which is a, a, a juicy <laughs> fruit. Um, it's 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 a nice thing. Um, so you know, to be embraced, um, by people who can be mean, um, and maybe somebody hearing this will now want to write something mean um but <laughs> but it's it's um 
you know, it's 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 nice that um that 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 really like the most surprising thing was a couple of days ago I saw that we had this rave in Le Monde, the you know the French oh, newspaper, yeah. which you know is tough. And then so it's it's reaching out to a lot of these tough tough guys and and just kind of um you know like the BFI um I guess Sight and Sound poll I guess had us as the number fourteen film of the year. Amazing. And so that's huge for documentary because no other yeah. documentary made the top twenty. Um, so, so that's great. So it's reaching out to, to different kinds of people. And I find those lists more gratifying than maybe, you know, necessarily like individual little things. Um, but, um, uh, it's, 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 it's been great. I, I just like that, that it's, it's speaking out to people who, who love movies and understand that what I was trying to do with this, and it's not just this crazy little, um, film that only makes sense to me. And luckily it's made, made sense to a lot of other people. Well, I can't recommend the movie highly enough, and I give you all my congratulations and and good luck and thanks for joining us here on Postmortem. Yeah, no, thanks really for. I, we didn't get to talk more about horror, but I guess you can you can sense that there's this this kind of line of horror like seeping through my entire um, life, even the way I talk about this film, because really George was a great vampire of cinema, and basically that was the theme. Uh. You know, as you watch Shirkers, like there's this whole um, the influence of the horror genre is deep in my film that's why i wanted you here <laughs> i could feel that anyway thanks again i really appreciate it it's so great to meet you and talk with you thanks Sandy. this thank was you. such great fun thank you so much for having me if you're enjoying postmortem it would be a great great favor to us for you to rate and review and subscribe on itunes or your favorite podcast app uh, you can access all of my video interviews and behind-the-scenes documentaries, things like that, at mickgarrisinterviews.com. Reach us on Twitter at PostmortemMG and on Instagram on PostmortemGram. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.